0: offices in london for episode 132 of blockchain insider the show dedicated to the news of where blockchain meets crypto and crypto meets institutions today we bring you will banks bet on central bank digital currencies more execs leave the swiss stock exchanges sdx and ripple apparently eyes an ipo all this and much much more on today's blockchain insider i'm your host simon taylor and making his blockchain insider debut, I am joined by, of course, the one and only Eric van der Kleege, who's CEO of Frontier Network. How are you doing, Eric? Terrific. Great to be here. Remind everybody what Frontier Network is.
1: Uh, We invest in companies, we start companies using frontier technologies, and we help them uh, expand globally, particularly focusing on figuring out how to succeed in China.
0: Lovely. Uh, (laughs) No no small task then. Uh, Frontier, indeed. That's what I do. Indeed. Uh, And of course, joining us on Blockchain Insider for the first time, but friend of 11FS and FinTech Insider, of course, is Andrew Smith, who's CTO at RTGS and head of CBX at Clearbank. How are you doing, Andy?
2: Not bad. Thanks, Simon.
0: Good, 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 good. Thanks for being involved. You know, a little bit about the world of uh, payments and what goes on at the infrastructure level. So, this could be a fun one given the amount of stuff going on this week. But um, before we get started, I have some awesome news, really awesome news. Da, da, da. Are you ready for roll! Uh 11FS is in the final for not just one, but two categories in the 2020 British Banking Awards. Uh, last year, we took home Consultancy of the Year, and we want to take home the trophy again this year, um, and you can help us do that, listeners. I've already and, voted. Yeah. Already voted
1: for them, though. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Just
0: definitely. Got to do it. Um, but listeners, if you haven't, you can head over to bit.ly forward slash 11FS 2020. Uh, vote for us for Consultancy of the Year and also Pioneer of the Year Award. Uh, all right. Thanks, everyone. Let's get on with the news. All right. The first story uh, is like could have been five or six different headlines. So I'll read out the headlines and then let's just jump into it, right? Because there's just a million things going on. So the first headline comes from The Block, and this is central banks are apparently pursuing extensive work on digital currencies, the Bank of International uh, Settlements researchers say. The second headline comes from Yahoo Finance, and it says the Bank of England are going to assess the potential for digital central bank currencies. Story from The Block, Japan um, central bank must be prepared to issue digital currency, says the deputy governor. Story from Cointelegraph, uh, the national banks of Cambodia will launch digital payment network this quarter. And uh, CoinDesk, uh, when will we see the digital dollar? Crypto Dad says soon, which of course is Christian Carlo, aka Crypto Dad, uh, who's uh, former CFTC chair. All right, so um, Eric, I'm going to come to you first on this. There's just so much noise in this space around central bank digital currencies. Sure is. Why? Um, I'd like to say because it's time, yeah. <laughs> and the
1: existing fiat system is probably best described as traditional, mm. especially RTGS systems. But, <laughs> 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 but um, probably the truth is they've been hurried along by somebody like China making a very two, two very serious announcements. One is a commitment to uh, central bank digital currency, and the other one is a major national commitment. Blockchain. Mm. So I think those are probably the catalyst that accelerated a lot of other people's interest.
0: And why do you think China's made those commitments?
1: Thanks for the toughest, but probably the most important question. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Um, So outwardly and in the relationships that we have with our partners, they tell us that actually it's to create a better, more efficient internal market. Mm -hmm. So that's you know the ostensible outward statement that that makes you think, yeah, okay, it'll probably do that if they do it right. But actually, you've got to wonder though, haven't you, if this is more about creating a balance in global trade Mm -hmm. and power. Uh, in terms of the u s dollar
0: yeah and and you know historically the u s dollar had been something that uh, the dollarization of the world, the euro dollar markets, the dollar being the reserve currency gave the u s in particular a lot of um power and control on the world stage about you know which regimes were going to be under sanctions and which regimes were going to be sort of uh, looked after in, in a different way. And actually, by using that tool um, as a as a weapon in in politics, both for good and bad reasons, sometimes, uh, then you can see how other states, once other state actors, might be like, "Don't like that." But but
1: maybe that was part of the problem. I mean, what you're talking about there is actually quite a centralized system. Mm. And if we look at economic challenges that the world has had, financial crises in particular, they've been exacerbated by sometimes centralised control by central banks, right? They haven't been made better in some cases. <laughs> so maybe the way forward then is to think about central banks actually enabling national digital currencies or even corporate digital currencies, perhaps underpinned as stable coins by central banks. Because what that'll do is that that could decentralise the risk a little bit.
2: Yeah, I kind of hear you there. I think actually just going back a little bit there. Um Central banks, I don't think we have a, a, a real problem with financial crisis, right? I think one of the big areas was there's no visibility of the actual liquidity, which maybe digital currencies can actually Could do, yeah. answer, right? But I kind of keep looking back at this sort of stuff and step in, stepping away and saying, okay, what, what problems are you really trying to solve with stable coins? What are you trying to solve with a digital currency? At the end of the day, the central banks right now, Bank of England, for example, is storing all that those funds, all of our funds, our deposits, whatever else there, and it's digitally stored. Mm-hmm. It already is. You know, we we're actually talking about an implementation that's different. Currency is already digital right mm-hmm. now. Values digital. The
0: overwhelming majority of money is not notes and coins Over, by, by a long way. But it sits as a digital record inside different commercial banks and, and central banks. But those digital records have some problems, right? When Eric says those are traditional methods for storing and moving money, there are some problems with that stuff.
2: Yeah, but there's also a lot of benefits. So you've really got to step back and say, what's your end-to-end use case that you're trying to solve, okay? Mm -hmm. And I get it when we talk about a commodity or a value, a store of value, that works really well, and I get it with a digital currency. But when you look at the economic levers that you actually traditionally pull, especially within like the UK or an evolved economy like we have here, um, money needs to be abstracted away from the owner, Mm -hmm. right? And therefore, that immutable ledger of who owns it and how you move those, those currencies around that actually causes you problems. This gives you new challenges. Mm. How do you actually take a bunch of deposits and then lend off the back of that? How do you Mm. quantitative ease? How do you devalue? How do you do a load of these things that have actually been there since the Bank of England was, you know, created in 16, whatever it was, you know, 325 years ago? These are all things that we all understand. And when you start talking about digital currencies, even at the central bank kind of issuing thing, you then start thinking about, well, how do I solve these challenges on top of it? So do I end up with an M0 digital currency and then everything else is abstracted away? Is it not really a digital currency? Is it more a digital commodity? So mm-hmm. instead of, you know, based on gold in the good old days, mm-hmm. my coin, you know, I promised to pay the 10 pounds in gold. Oh, I promised to be the bearer. I, yeah, bearer, damn, I sorry, got it wrong straight away. But anyway, the, the point was, you know, do you actually then say we have a digitally backed... Uh, commodity that is actually centrally issued and then cash or kind of like the currency elements. It's on top of that. And, and there's I think lots of problems there, around Andy. this that solving.
0: The, you raise a good point, Andy, because when people say digital currency, we could mean a million things. Mm. And all of those different things could solve for different problems. So do we mean something that looks like Bitcoin? Do we mean something that looks like um, PayPal? Which could be quote unquote digital cash, right? I've got something that looks and feels like a wallet. If I'm using square cash, I've got something that looks and feels like a wallet. Beneath the glass, what's going on is very different. And I think actually, Eric, that's where you were heading. Is the, whilst the above the glass is, is kind of feels solved for in some markets, not everywhere, beneath the glass, there is a, a, a problem space. But to Andy's point, but there are reasons why it was built that way that may still be true, but how do you dissect what those problems beneath the glass were from you know me moving money from one account to another account versus cash versus everything else in the economy is it Is it a consumer problem is it a is it a business problem
1: so, so for me, the answer is measure the friction mm. i mean understanding the friction will We'll really answer Andy's what's-the-use-case question. By the way, can I just say as an aside, I love it. Seven minutes and 30 seconds in, and we use the word immutable and ledger mm. in a blockchain insider show. We did it.
2: You did it right <laughs> used it in context. You don't, need to, you don't need a blockchain <laughs> to be immutable I know, and, a and a
1: ledger. Right, a ledger. Totally, yeah. but But I love the fact that we managed to get that in there. Shall we do the buzzword count yeah, right. soon? But to answer <laughs> your your question, it is about friction. When you think about what fintech is, which is, if you like, the heritage for, for a lot of us mm-hmm. is... It is how can we do things 10 times better, more efficiently, more you know, less friction. And the challenge that we have on an international global basis is there are many entities that are benefiting from the friction. And so we don't actually know what the best method, what the best way forward is. But one thing that we have seen as a learning from cryptocurrency is that people do rely on stable coins. They absolutely do for well, their trading, for their, uh, to take their in and out positions when they're changing between different types. And so if you just take that simple analogy, relying on stable coins to create more frictionless fungibility where the cost of switching is much lower, then in theory, a lot of trade should be unlocked but you can't right. figure it out until just you measure it. it.
0: before you go into that, Andy. Oh, it's a great <coughs> point. It's
2: a great point there. Fr- right?
0: Frictionless fungibility. Let's just define that because I think that's a really, really interesting um, place to play in terms of what the benefit could be. So, could we just define that before you, you well, go? Well, no,
2: let, go for it because it's the M zero M. one Yeah, yeah, the, yeah. But, but actually, sticking with the friction part, right? So, so. Let's take cross-border payments, whether you, uh, whether you subscribe to a TransferWise model or a blockchain model or whatever you, you subscribe to, right? Actually, it's about $15 trillion a year is the cost of friction in the current network, in the current system right? That's not something I've just made up, but that's an RTGS kind of figure we've worked with the World Bank to try and understand. It's about 15 trillion a year. Now, that is a ridiculous amount of money, which is borne as an expense by individual businesses, whether it's trade-related or just invoice finance or whatever else Mm you've got as those supply chain networks across border. Now, that's a massive amount of money. Now, stable coins right now don't solve that. Mm-hmm. They don't solve that, right? And even if I look two, three, four, five years down the line, I don't think they solve it because the problem you still have is everything around the edge cases. Mm-hmm. When I've received my stablecoin as a business, as an end user, how do I actually want to spend it? I might want to go and buy myself a new pair of Jordan Air trainers, right? Mm-hmm. A little plug there for for favorite brand. Mm-hmm. But you might do that. I'm I, not going to go. You can get Kobe Bryant's. Well, yeah. yeah. Uh, anyway, so you could you could. Can you actually go and buy whatever you want with that stablecoin? Well, probably not, right? I can't just go into Foot Locker and all of that. So you, I've now got friction from my stablecoin back out into a fiat currency. Now, friction at both ends is what's really happening there. Right now, with, with fiat, you pre fund. We have friction with that in terms of the, the banks themselves. They don't want to pre fund, but mm-hmm. they have to. Then you have a bunch of problems with you know, you FX in, I send the money to Simon. Simon's in Australia. I said I'm going to send him 100 Aussie dollars. And what did he get? 97 Aussie mm-hmm. dollars. When you add a stable coin into that, you have the same problem again, because I'm gonna FX in, so to speak, into a stable coin. The stable coin may be back to US dollars, goes to you in Australia, you to FX out. So there's added friction there. I haven't taken anything away. So there might be efficiencies in the infrastructure. And I love infrastructure plays, you know, and that's mm-hmm. one of the reasons why we're founders yeah. at ClearBank, right? But you've got to look at the infrastructure and say, what am I actually solving based on an application and a use case? Now, a stable coin, if it's universally available mm-hmm. at both ends, of you can spend it freely and pretty much wherever you want, it works brilliantly. But there is a, so much... Um, investment infrastructure and edge players that have got to be involved for that to work, and you don't need that to work.
0: So I'm thinking about the euro dollar markets, um, where you know the dollar is available to banks outside of the USA, you know, originally in Europe, but obviously now the euro dollar is a, a phrase that means dollars anywhere else, and you get uh, euro euros and, and so on. It, it's a currency held cross border by a bank outside of the country that issued that that the currency. Bank, bank,
2: banks already hold right, so so right yeah, now any bank yeah, already can done. hold any currency. It, it, yeah, it, it, that's right.
0: It's already done. However, when doing that, the controls around those banks out of country are harder for a given state to have about its, about its money. Um, but the US has always been fine with that because actually by its links into the SWIFT network, its links into OFAC, running the OFAC list, it is effectively able to manage its currency on a global stage. But if I'm China, Perhaps I don't have quite the same level of currency control over something like the Ramimbi outside of my borders as I start to expand into the region. So if I could have money with policy, money that has um, a set of rules around it, money that can only be used in certain ways by banks in other countries, that, that happens to use a different technology, that might be quite interesting.
1: I think you're getting towards one of the key features that we hope or that some people believe will be the benefits, mm. which is programmable money. Mm-hmm. Uh, And programmable money fit for purpose Mm -hmm. for certain purposes can, in theory, reduce a lot of corruption, Uh, actually prevent things like uh, sanctions being uh, broken. So the traceability uh, of digital currencies where programmatic capability is embedded within the actual very design of them – could actually help reduce friction. Of course, it, it will restrict the secondary markets of that, mm. which is the beauty of uh, of the beauty and the challenge of fiat at the moment, isn't mm. it? It's, uh, it's the uh,
2: cross, cross that you kind of have to bear when you're running a bank. Probably going more money makes a lot of sense, right? But I actually think the bigger win there is nothing to do with the money itself. It's to do with digital identity. <laughs> yeah. So that's that's where – well, it's, it's true, isn't it, right? Yeah. If you, because right now I can see through – and I've forgotten who did this this study, right? I was looking at how much um, – AML and FinCrime-related transactions are happening through Bitcoin. And you can see it's going to corrupt wallets. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right, so you can see that, but you don't actually know the identities of these actors. You just know that you shouldn't be dealing with them, potentially, right? That causes big problems. And you, you, you're you solving some things. But not that so that much better than where we are with Fiat? But you can do it with Fiat. You know you shouldn't be dealing with it. You could do it with Fiat. That's the thing you can do it with it. If you look at the payment systems themselves right now, right, everybody yeah. sanctions screens every single transaction across Africa because it's the identity of the entity. Whereas here, well, you the attach is-
1: the identity of should you or shouldn't you take that dollar, that digital dollar, because it's embedded within the very audit trail of the currency itself. That's a huge
2: difference. But, but you can still do that. that. That's what I'm trying to get to. So let's try and say when you look at the the the, the way that you try. The benefits of a stable coin, the benefits of digital currencies, right, are there. They are there, right? But it takes such a long time to get there. And the infrastructure that you've got to build around it, the innovation's already moved past it. Mm. So when I look at what we're doing with RTGS Global, right, you couldn't have done this technology more than mm, nine months ago, what we've been building. Okay? You just couldn't do it. Mm -hmm. And when we look at what use cases we're solving, (coughs) all of a sudden I say, well, there is no need for a stable currency, stable coin. You could move stablecoins through it and use it as a payment system kind of infrastructure. But if you've got um, if you've got auditability, you've got liquidity that's completely visible, you can move fiat currencies in real time instantly.
0: Without pre-funding.
2: Without pre-funding, right? And without any FX exposure at the other end. All of a sudden, you've removed all the benefits. Well, not all the benefits, but many of the benefits of programmable money mm-hmm. on stablecoins and stuff like that. And what's the infrastructure cost to the end banks to actually implement it? Is nigh on negligible because it's actually still following the common understanding around fiat currencies and systems like FPS and the RTGS that's legacy, as you put it earlier on. <laughs> <laughs> <Sorry. No. laughs> Enjoyed that.
0: Yeah. But, but you've but already got England that. are looking at the RTGS system upgrade. Are, yeah. them. So, yeah. well, and, actually, and so the legacy tech is being upgraded. So is it just what we need a tech upgrade is what Andy's saying, I think.
1: Well, that's what I'd like to ask. What do you think, uh, Andy? Uh, so, sorry, I know you're the interviewer. Yeah, part. no, it's no, no, no. This is a cool question. So we met the Bank of England, I think, uh, four months ago, five months ago, team of four looking at you know, digital currencies, roundtable, you know, all that, all that kind of stuff. They talk, talked about the RTGS system and their upgrades to that. Fantastic. That's really great. But two weeks ago, they made this announcement about their collaboration mm-hmm. with Bank of Japan and a whole bunch of other players. Mm-hmm. What do you think their purpose is in their collaboration?
2: So, so first off, I think, right, if, if you used to – actually, if you were sitting there on the Bank of England side, right, you would have to have an obligation to investigate this stuff. Mm. You just cannot yeah, – Because of
1: Libra. Well,
0: I, I'm and, trying uh, Bank of you know, China, Libra, bank, whatever China. Else. But it is. Pol- politicians asking questions. Yeah, but and, it's an emerging tech,
2: right? Yeah. That actually, yeah. okay. if you look at – their actual remit is to look at the financial stability mm-hmm. of the country. Now, cryptocurrencies, stable coins, whatever you want, has a potential impact on that. Now, whether you look at that because of how do I actually lend cryptocurrencies, what does that mean for economic levers and all that stuff that we've been through, they've got an obligation to look at that. Then you come to the point of, well, actually, is it looking at as crypto assets or cryptocurrencies? Right? There, there is a difference. We know that the Bank of England looked at DLT technology for quite some time and said, actually, that's not where we're going with RTGS version 2. But that doesn't necessarily mean there isn't you know, wider thinking. It's digital thinking. assets,
1: their focus, right? Well, it well, could be. I would hope so. The, but- the, the LSE uh, investing in uh, LSEG, isn't it? Investing in yep. Navarro, who we had on yeah. the show, didn't you? I mean, that's about issuing your own digital and, and uh, issuing and custodying your
2: own digital asset.
0: Direct custody. Direct
1: yeah. custody. Uh, that's pretty, pretty
0: so digital I quite like,
2: Yeah, I think that's quite cool, right? But then you, you need to have certain things like payment systems around that when you move, the assets, and that's not to do necessarily, and that does, that probably sits quite horribly with with kind of blockchain of this whole trusted but untrusted parties on the network thing, right? You want to have trusted entities and an auditable log. At the end of the day, central regulators are going to look at this stuff and say, if there is AML, if somebody's being negligible for for whatever they're doing um, in terms of KYC, AML, blah blah blah, they need to be able to hold somebody personally accountable for that.
1: But talking about sovereign trusted entities in a national and then international digital digital currency scenario, the thing that the parties need to rely on is fungibility between them and Mm -hmm. trust that you know it'll happen. So maybe what we should be looking for is something like a Mm -hmm. digital special drawing rights or something as a
0: which which is what people have played with. um Colin G. Platt, um, former host of the show and, and, and still a good friend of the show, is, um, wrote a brilliant blog post called uh, uh, Crypto um, for Bozos um, and uh, Libra for Bozos. Uh, and basically he, he compares Libra's uh, kind of proposed financial model uh, and reserve model to special drawing rights and to euro dollar markets and p- calls out all of the problems with the economics of the special drawing rights and the reason why they didn't pick up mm, in the 70s up, yeah. and why, why they didn't happen. And, and I think a lot of times uh, it's, not just, it's not a tech conversation that we're missing, it's an economics conversation about where the economic friction is and you get under why some of these things exist and they, they start to make a bit a- more And
2: sense. that's my point around what are you trying to solve? Okay, a lot of technologists... And, I, you know, I am a technologist through and through and I'm, you know, I've suffered with this in the past is we find this cool technology and implementation of how to actually do something. Right. And then you start searching for a problem to solve with it. And sometimes I feel like, especially with with cryptocurrencies and when we talk about currencies or you know cross borders with stable coins that we're starting to look at. We've got this great technology. We think there's a use case here, here and
0: here. Do you not believe in the Libra conversation about a a same as cash uh, sort of um, bearer instrument for the kind of the the next billion and the last billion? Because I think there's something interesting there about uh, anybody who has a wallet could hold something that has stable value in, in countries where their own currency might not have stable value, um, potentially linked or back to the US dollar or linked or back to, to something else. Like there's there's probably something in in that going where the existing payment systems couldn't or wouldn't uh, because they you've almost seen this race to sort of the race to centralization created uh, sort of citadels of uh, established Western uh, countries and companies who had access to that system and a large swathe of people for whom that infrastructure is completely unaffordable. Mm.
1: The financially included benefiting far more from the centralized Mm. institutions that we erected for ourselves. Mm. I liked your Citadel analysis. Very poetic. (laughs) Um, But actually the the concept of – so we're trying to imagine, aren't we, the empowerment that financial inclusion will deliver or not Mm -hmm. to those currently less financially included – We've seen small examples of that uh, in in various countries, but we also see in countries where there is a genuine challenge with the regime, a huge flight to the reliability, the certainty of cryptocurrencies.
0: Bitcoin is very heavily used in Venezuela and accepted at more than 10% of merchants there now. Um, And actually that. It suddenly starts to look quite different when you're in those countries, and and if they had something that just came with whatever social network they happened to be used in in the market, you could see some value. And do you but,
1: remember the Cyprus uh, fable? The 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 it was, I don't think it actually happened, but the story the, the Greek the Greek uh, story, not Cyprus. I think it was Greek, wasn't it? Uh, where I mean, wasn't. Eva the MEP, it. talks about this quite a lot. She she was saying, I remember she t- her telling the story that there was the problem, wasn't there, where in Greece, there was the, the, the run on the banks. Mm-hmm. And they pla- there was actually a plan. It was very Farkis. There was, it was, there was a, a myth, I think, that there was going to be a plan that they were going to empty all their accounts of euros and replace them with Bitcoin.
0: Mm.
1: If they had done it, of course, the Greeks would be the richest nation in the world, in the world at the time. But uh, mm-hmm. the irony of that. Or well, if they'd sold it. In but there, because if the loss of confidence in the government was so high that it couldn't underpin the asset, and the confidence of the society using a cryptocurrency could be an indication to us Is that, that currency though, at that point or is that an asset? Yeah, it it's feels great more question.
0: like digital gold. I more mean, Bitcoin, Bitcoin plays the role of digital gold quite well uh, and and it seems to behave mostly that way. It's not particularly fast and efficient to move around the world in its standard form. But,
2: but this comes back to my point. I quite like crypto assets because I kind of see that, you know, there's... We have commodities like gold, silver, and you back off that. But if you have digital versions, I I can see a bunch of benefits with that, right? Mm. But when you start looking at, as I said, currency, actual hard cash, so to speak, when that's in a crypto kind of world, it doesn't... the reason why fiat works is because you have an abstraction mm-hmm. between actually the owner of it and the transactions around that money. If you think how fiat works right now at the Bank of England, there's so many who are, have got direct access to the Bank of England, but all the money is just sitting across those X number of pots. Mm-hmm. It's all commingled, right? And then it's actually leveraged off the balance sheet to, to provide people with their mortgages. Mm-hmm. If you if you then fast forward and then look at a world where you'd say actually most of this is now sitting with cryptocurrency. Mm-hmm. What does that look like in terms of how did I get my mortgage?
0: Well, right? it, I definitely look into the DeFi space because decentralized finances and, and compound finance and all those guys are coming up with really interesting experiments. Very very early, um, but the idea is quite similar. You park collateral and you lend against that collateral and take a risk um, on, on the.
2: Yeah, but we you don't just park collateral. And right? as as a bank is made up of my deposits and yes. my deposit is now funding your business. Yes. Right. There is there's, there's 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 liquidity thresholds there. Mm-hmm. You've got capital requirements, In a fractional blah, blah, blah. reserve way.
0: Yeah, but but uh, it's fractionally reserved, and which which again, a, a bank lends and it prices the risk of default. Uh, this is something that you could imagine software doing. Um with well software does it right well and it uh, <laughs> in most banks it's probably still committees and paper but uh, <laughs> <laughs> well it's software then the committees and paper, yeah, yeah. And <laughs> <and> the software is <laughs> is uh, definitely software there uh, but if you look at what's happening with MakerDAO and everything that's happening with compound up finance there's there's another model there that's emerging and whilst fundamentally it would have all of the same problems that you have for economically in the banking system today and you probably recreate the maze, you might have a more efficient maze that's my point right right so
2: is it worth going through all the cost, pain, upheaval, learning curves, to actually only have a slightly more efficient mate? I
0: think it is. Right? You, I, need I would to, say, you need to take a jump beyond well, that. Well, if, if the I, friction is 15 trillion.
2: Yes, but you're not, you're not necessarily solving that. That's mm. what I'm saying. You're not solving that with stable coins or anything like that. You're not solving that friction because it then comes down to, okay, I've got two currency or a currency corridor that's using stable coins, but at the end – can I actually spend those stable coins themselves in those jurisdictions? And if you can, then you've got all these other problems with that, which means you've got basically a global currency. Uh So then just, you know, sod it. We'll all have a global currency. Well, back to your
1: (laughs) point about uh, DeFi.
2: Uh, What we like to
1: do is we open up our hub to actually um, activists Mm -hmm. to come and whiteboard uh, DeFi solutions because we learn so much from – the way that they think. I mean, mm-hmm. I, I'll predict it here. We will see DeFi unicorns. There's mm-hmm. no question about it. And will they really be DeFi then? But that's another question. Well, that,
0: yeah, ex- <laughs> I think that's exactly it. We've, we've seen peer-to-peer lending unicorns that aren't really peer-to-peer. And so there's there's something about the, the laws <laughs> of the universe just seem to to yeah. keep playing out. Cap- capital tends to agglomerate. Um, but yeah.
1: if I can say on the central bank digital currency thing, if if, if I would say just what, what, what feels right to me, what feels interesting to me would be if organized Organizations like the Bank of England created a mechanism where a company could apply to create its own digital currency backed by the Bank of England uh, digitally.
2: You know, That, that could be quite but interesting because then it's a the digital asset. And I, I, I'm all fully on board with that, right? Because at that point, you come back to almost to, to my £10 note kind of. Analogy, right? Well, because yeah, because then, right then you're then talking about
0: commercial paper, really, aren't you? Yes, it, which banks already do, but isn't linked to the underlying M zero necessarily. It's it, it's something else, but it has it, it's priced almost exactly the same. Sometimes it's priced with risk. Sometimes it's priced, which is not dissimilar to what you see with tether.
2: But but you could see then at that particular point, if you've got digitally backed assets that sit at central banks. Uh, a collaboration between the UK and Japan, for example, then you might move those particular assets between the, between you two mm-hmm. um, quite seamlessly. It'll, without allow, the netting. Friction. it'll yeah, allow netting. it allow right? netting, which is kind of a bit like CLS is doing that right now, right? They're trying to use comes from, a universal settlement coin to actually say that we know you haven't got the liquidity here. So oh, <laughs> actually, yeah. we're going to have to net this and then look at how much are we actually paying each other and we'll do it around the table
0: with a, with the US. Actually,
2: you remind me, I've got to ask for a review of all the consortia
1: because I haven't uh, caught up on all the consortium. Yeah,
0: finality and utility supplement coins getting really, really interesting at the moment, but that's one. Well, Well, payment
2: finality is also a a big issue with crypto, right? So you you say we've got the immutable ledger. I I need to get another. (laughs) (laughs) Where's the symbol for that? But you've got that, right? But But, a lot of payments It depends on how you're
0: coming to consensus, right? Because an immutable ledger whereby we come to consensus with mining is very different to an immutable ledger where we use Byzantine fault tolerance or something like that, right? But, But it's, There's
2: legal constructs around what is finality.
0: Right. And, and, and it's kind of nuts for anybody who really wants to go down a rabbit hole, if you're listening, checking out uh, Settlement Finality. Like, it's a huge subject and yeah. an and, and absolutely massive issue, um, and because reasons. Um, but because reasons, I've also got to do an ad read. Um, so uh, <laughs> this episode is brought to you by R3, and developed by R3. Corda is known for its enterprise-grade security, privacy, scalability, and interoperability. And because Corda was built to meet the stringent requirements of any uh, highly- regulated industry uh, in particular financial services it can be used by firms of any type size or industry with quarter every business can leverage the power of blockchain and a free trial of quarter enterprise is available at r3.com head on over to check it out all righty um we could talk as you could probably tell we could talk about uh, everything crypto and payments um and uh, stable coins and central bank digital currencies quite a while. Um, I but there I've are... come across anti it,
2: but I'm not. <laughs> it's kind of... no, I don't think you are. Um, <laughs> I just but, want an uh, asset as opposed to a currency. <laughs> I, I,
0: I wouldn't be surprised. And then there's the whole account-to-account payments thing. and What does that mean? That This one will run and run, I'm sure. Um, but there's been some other news this week that we need to get through. Um, and it's going to be interesting to see uh, your views on these. Um, this story comes from TechCrunch, and this is about Hyperledger Fabric, um, the open source distributed ledger reaching release 2.0. So shout out to everybody at the Hyperledger Foundation for getting there. Uh, the biggest update, of course, involved forcing agreement among parties before any new data can be added to the ledger. Finally. Yeah, meaning that the system will prevent any entity from writing to the ledger until there's consensus, of course. Uh, and along those lines, developers can build automated checks along the way um, and ensure the parties validate additional information before endorsing. Um, what were your thoughts on Hyperledger when you've looked at it, Andy? You've got you've looked at lots of different technologies out there. there is there anything that struck you when you've seen it? It's... Uh, I guess it's like um, picking any technology stack. There's pros and cons of everything.
2: Yeah, and that's exactly what I try and do when I look at technology stacks. Is actually, what is the application use and what's the pros from that, mm-hmm. uh, and what's the con- usually the cons come back to what's the cost of the implementation mm-hmm. and the challenges around that. Some of the hyperledger stuff, I, I I'm quite a big fan of. Um, But again, it's down to use cases, right? You've got to pick your technologies based on the right use cases. And use cases then includes, as I said, what's the upheaval and use case for that infrastructure? Um,
1: I don't know if you guys know this, but when you first visited us in Level 39, Mm -hmm. we had actually launched one of the first blockchain labs in the UK. Mm -hmm. And the thing we were doing there was benchmarking different blockchains through a set of standardized tests. It was... Territoriality, finality, DVP, whole, mm. you know, as expressed in 42 hypotheses in a standardised test, so that people making decisions on what to build. Could have a better choice. You've sort of inspired me to do that again.
0: Yeah, I think it's worthwhile because it's moved forward quite consistently. And there's a lot of um, kind of what it was at 0.6 and 1.0 is very different to 2.0. Uh, and, and as technologies mature, they change quite dramatically. So, you know, and, and this is you hear Hyperledger Fabric being used in some major industry consortia, um, you know, Musk and IBM and many, many others. Uh, and it, it's kind of really evolved into a community as well. The Linux uh, kind of foundation puts a massive community around this thing. Um, so it's so really interesting to see. But also Corda's matured in the same time frame. And, and Ethereum's about to go through its uh, Istanbul yeah. hard fork. So it's, it's and, an interesting time. And, the,
2: you know, evolution of technology is, is, is interesting, right? But it depends when you hop on to a technology is the big question, right? If you hop on too early, especially if I was to put my, my hat on from the bank, if you hop on too early, you, you could be in some serious trouble, right? Yeah. Um, and you don't want to have to keep reworking that, especially with, with you've got... You find want to number build your way out. Yeah, exactly. So if it's a bit like the old saying, you would never take the alpha release from you know a particular software vendor. You might risk a beta, but you always wait.
0: <laughs> you always wait. Um, the best example I heard was somebody, uh, a CIO of um, of a large financial market intermediary, who said to me, um, sort of reminded them of the early days of Linux, um, in that really early on there were so many distros, you know, was it Red Hat, was it Ubuntu, was it going to be Debian, like which, which of the... It's so many flavors at the start. Yeah, yeah. And, and it wasn't clear that Red Hat was going to be, you know, kind of the dominant one in the server space and Ubuntu was going to be the... But, but the imagine US, if
2: you're a buyer, right? Which one, which horse are you back in? And yeah. you're going to put your, name, well, your, your neck on the block sometimes to actually... And you're not, you're not um, when to.
0: they're early, they're all good at different stuff. As yep. they age and mature, the the strongest two or three pick up bit good ideas from everywhere so, else. So
1: think about us, right? We're busy investing in small projects at the moment. And the founders always come to us with perfect rationale for whatever their weapon of choice is for the technology they're using. It's it's a serious thing when you're in a bank and you've got a, another thing about once you've invested in a technology, you've got a team that's capable of delivering in that, it's hard to change, right? Yeah. But at the investing level, it's even higher risk. Um, and actually, I'll say that one of the things that we've come to the conclusion of is actually neutrality is important. Mm -hmm. Interoperability. There's a reason we put a stake into Active Ledger. It's because they have figured out how to keep the same version of truth between whatever platform you choose. And of course, it's fully bilingual Mandarin, which means that 200 developers a week are downloading it in China, Mm -hmm. building all sorts of very cool things with it, which is helpful. And that's because we want to do business internationally. So I think that that's why I quite liked what corded it focused on interoperability yeah. built by professionals built by in in, in interoperability but Hyperledger has so much talent feeding mm. into it. Mm-hmm. You expect to have a lot more development there. Yeah,
0: it, you can tell a lot about uh, the, the the platforms from who their parents are and what their backgrounds are. And, and Corda is very, very good at bringing uh, financial services and regulated industries into this brave new world um, and being that regulated safe adapter in, into that world. Hyperledger seems to be much more adept and focused on dealing with industry consortia that are dealing with different types. Types of um, kind of challenges in m- across multiple industries rather than one industry slice. It's multiple industries, um, and then you know, the Ethereum space is just like this absolute uh, uh, smush of of different kind of creativity, and and you kind of really does seem to have the creative. If it happens somewhere, it probably happens there first, even in a small way. So you've kind of, uh, it's where do you want to be, and and which ones will mature, and they'll probably like uh, Ubuntu, Debian, and uh, and kind of Red Hat. They'll probably all Continue to exist for some time and find their find their space. Gonna be interesting to watch. All right, next story this week comes from CoinDesk, and this is about three execs leaving the Swiss stock exchange's hundred million dollar blockchain project. So, um, two founding team members have left. SDX, the blockchain-based digital asset trading venue owned by the Swiss stock exchange Operator 6. Uh, Ivo Sauter and Sven Roth uh, both left their full-time positions in January, and Alex Zinder, an architecture lead, also left. Sauter said he was on good terms and happy to have been given the chance to do the work he'd done, but said growing disalignment meant he had no desire to have his contract renewed because the goals of SDX have become much more for banks and only for banks. Um, could you look at this as somebody investing in the space? Do you think there is a, uh, a practical reality meeting youthful exuberance here? Or do you think there's the risk of a missed opportunity um, with potentially re-architecting who gets to access financial infrastructure?
1: Practical reality youthful exuberance used in the context of a Swiss operation. Interesting. Yeah. <laughs> Interesting.
0: Nice. <laughs> you never thought it would happen. <laughs> I never
1: thought it happened. It's amazing. It happened here. Um,
0: you were so, there
1: when? when the referendum happened in the UK, bear with me, I will get there. There's wow, okay.
0: When uh, the referendum happened, I did. I didn't
1: say the B word, I said the referendum. But, that thing. Uh, but we're almost through the therapy, don't worry. Um, the, it, I decided to do business in non-EU countries mm. at that moment. So, hence the focus on China and also Switzerland. So, we've enjoyed the last four years of developing our relationships there around the huge Kickstart Accelerator often doing work with organizations like SIX in their innovation teams. And what we learned from that, and in fact, I've just come back from uh, two weeks in Switzerland with uh, Davos and the uh, Crypto Finance Conference. I interviewed Thomas Moser, who is from the Central Bank of Switzerland, and asked him about the SDX project because he he said, Mm. yeah, it's okay to ask me about it. And he said, they've got a lot of hope for it. It it is what they wanted to happen. They wanted to take that in the direction it's going. But I think the reality is that – step they've probably got to the point where they've decided okay step 1 needs to be institutionally focused before right. we can widen it to all of the, just think about all the onboarding we had a terrific conversation downstairs in the lobby about onboarding and KYC yeah. it's what happens in your lobby these problems are solved
0: yeah. <laughs> this is where you need to come visit us in in Finsbury Avenue at the 11 FSHQ people just Absolute. come 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 get in touch i think there's something um, that goes against what um, Clayton Christiansen, who's recently passed away, of course, um, famously said about how uh, disruption tends to come from the edges rather than from serving the existing market. So, how does that happen? It's the
1: center buys
0: the edge. That's does it what though? It, yeah, it
1: does. Think about the, all the acquisitions and the in the ingesting of innovation. Once the edge is proven, it's got traction, mm. and you're going to see that with the with the. Um, what is it, the challenger banks that are all, you know, how many of them are coming to market? Oh, that's the next story.
2: Yeah. First, it's just, so I, I think actually that, that it's almost a bit of a nothing story, this, yeah. simply because, you know, things take longer than youthful exuberance wants. Uh, <laughs> right? It's simple as that, take right? four times as so, long as you want. So, yeah, yeah, they probably want to do, you know, jump three, four, five. And, and I'm one of those people. I want to jump over certain steps because you think, well, actually, that's not really moving the needle. If I yeah. go to this one, that really does move the needle. And you want to get there quickly. Right, and if you have them uh, having to step back and, and be reined in, so to speak, yeah, you're obviously going to have a misalignment, right? And that's just that just that's pretty common, I think, with any tech startup.
0: I, I'm going to say it though. I, I do think that uh, incumbents struggle to follow disruption theory properly. They'll read the book, um, the Innovators Dilemma, and then not segment the market and serve the serve the niche. I mean, regardless of whether those those people who serve the niche get um, sort of uh, or the underserved that get acquired later. We can debate that and, and I think that's an interesting point but it actually it's kind of going there's your existing clients and then there's creating new markets and disruption is often about creating that new market and that might be something that's I, I think it's more to do
2: with cannibalism. I don't, yeah. most, most institutions that are kind of like established or incumbent they don't understand that they've got to re-cannibalize themselves okay. to actually have that longevity and technology. Almost plan their exit, their succession.
1: Yeah
0: and the,
2: the problem then if is... if you're going just,
0: after your existing incumbent Sort of uh, institutions. Are you? Is that not more cannibalism than going after the new space that they're not currently addressing?
2: Well, but, but just so, so a board of of somebody an incumbent probably does get it and they want to cannibalize it. But then you think the amount of people who are in that institution yeah. below you who don't buy in or drink the Kool Aid. So it's it's one of those weird things that you really want to go forward and as an institution you want to drive it.
0: And get come, there. Come and see eleven FS if well, you've got
2: that problem. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> that's so, what exactly. you
0: guys do. We can help with that sort of thing. Middle, yeah. middle management. <laughs> yeah. Middle management. Management it's as the a service. Antibodies.
2: Yeah. Figuring out. But, what but to do we with had the an antibodies. interesting conversation at FinTech Talents about this, right? Which was to do with with culture. Mm. Uh, and the culture side of it is really interesting. You've got an incumbent that's culture is financial services first, technology second. If you have a culture that's technology first, financial services second, you cannibalise right? Because that's what you're used to. You want to innovate, you want to move forward and you'll cannibalize your own models. If your financial services first, you're not used to that. You don't think that way. And let's face it, if you're a large incumbent, how many people are tech first compared to the proportion of your employer base that's financial services first? Indeed. Try and move that. I think I'm with Andy. It's a non-story, but hat tip to the original
1: team that tried to be as bold as they mm. could be. And uh, let's hope that they continue on that journey,
0: and let's see where they land next as well, because actually that's a lot of talent that just went into the market that's got a lot of experience doing hard things. It's always good. interesting, man. Yeah, I like that. Yeah, there's one to watch. Watch the talent, uh, not 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 the companies. Uh, next story comes from Coin Telegraph, and uh, this is the Ripple CEO hinting that an IPO, um, and says more crypto firms will go public in 2020. So speaking at the World Economic Forum, Ripple CEO Brad Garlinghouse predicts that uh, IPO will become more prevalent in the cryptocurrency and blockchain space, hinting that Ripple itself may be one of those firms to seek a public flotation. He says, "Um, we're not going to be the first and we're probably not going to be the last, but I expect us to be on the leading side. It's a natural evolution for our company. Um, This is a trend that Garlinghouse believes will consolidate itself in the near future. Uh, Eric, do you think we'll see lots of IPOs in the near future from the crypto
1: space? Uh, From the crypto space? Okay, so... In the next two years, let's take a guess, there'll be about forty to fifty billion of market cap entering the market through IPOs with Challenger banks, I mean mm-hmm. Starling of you know probably up there and Monzo, you know, Monzo N26. and this uh, N26, yeah. There's plenty. And so Chime. if you think about for a second, apart from the irony of Ripple thinking about an IPO, if you think about it, but but let's leave that for another uh, pub discussion. Apart mm-hmm. from that irony, mm-hmm. if they are now to be regarded as an infrastructure provider. I mean, remember Chris Larson coming to Level 39 in 2013 saying they have did the CBA experiments and they figure out they're a technology company. Uh, That was a a couple of years before he, for a moment, became the richest man in the world Mm -hmm. when the price hit the roof. (laughs) Uh, But uh, just for a moment. Um, But actually, their progress and the talent that they've hired is actually helping them go in that direction and produce amazing solutions for banking, better rails and things like that. So why would you not if you're in that position with that kind of credibility and the bridge to the non-traditional uh, fiat world in some ways? I mean somebody told me in the US that they would put their money on, on Ripple because eventually they thought when the US realized that China could be a real rival, they would probably back Ripple. Mm. Why so wouldn't
0: they back Libra instead? Well, that's in,
1: because at that time, Libra
2: wasn't announced.
0: Uh-huh. <laughs> Got out of that one. <laughs> uh, <laughs> Andy, what are your thoughts when you looked at this?
2: Uh, I'm going to be a bit careful of what I say. Just between us. Nobody's listening. Just between us. You know, I, I think it's kind, it is kind of interesting, right? But I, I kind of look at the um, that mini-disc moment. Do you remember that? When we all mm-hmm. rushed out and bought mini-discs and everything else? I think there's a ton of interest that, Um, You know, these companies or this technology will IPO, you know, crypto assets or people like Ripple. And when you actually get to the point, innovation is moving so fast now. It's it's accelerating, accelerating that, you know, we'll have all the big build up. We'll get to that point and then realize that actually the new things already come along. Um, And we might jump over that. I I can't get past the irony, to be honest. It is the irony. but It's it's uh, a real struggle for me. It all depends, I think, on how they price it.
1: Because I mean, Wall Street does know how to price good IPOs. They they kind of you know don't make any money unless they price it right. So um, it does depend on how it, price it how they price it. What it and then enables the business. Why are they doing it? Does it then give the business the kind of credibility to enter the banking world and transform mm. that? Does is
0: it? Yeah. yeah, I
2: don't know if the IPO does that, though. I really don't know if it gives them the credibility, right? I think it's uh, – the banking world will look at and go, all oh, right, that's interesting, you've IPO'd, you've got that value, yeah, blah, but, blah, blah, but blah. It, well, it... you imagine somebody like JP Morgan and then looking at what they're going to actually implement in terms of their infrastructure. Yeah. That, well, but, you know, you, you kind of – got to remember the buying mentality. About. I
0: take a slightly different tack on this. It's 2020 and you know, Ripple formed in, what, 2012? Yeah. Um, they have investors that are eight years into this thing. Um, I wonder how much of this is, you know, sort of those investors LP in the legal pressure. entity. Yeah, yeah. Maybe no, yeah, no, maybe could be, could, be, could End be of life. I didn't think of that. Yeah. It, it,
2: well, surely they get paid back in XLP, right? Well, actually, well not, this, not everybody would.
1: Right? No, but they do have this huge XRP treasury where they can deploy, and they right. do deploy, Yeah, and so I'm sure they can solve problems. And there's, there's terrific secondary markets. I don't know. I mean, it, it's one of the IPOs that I would call probably infrastructure IPO, mm. worth, definitely worth looking at. I'm certainly going to watch it. But I think the more interesting question is how are we going to price all those Uh, you know, challenger banks coming to market. One of our portfolios, uh, Novum, and they're producing this research where they're hoovering in all the metrics from all the challenger banks to figure out which one's Really have the, the the advantage in cost of acquisition per customer, and mm-hmm. you know retention, and you know number of what is it number of uh, complaints, staff trained, pre trained up mm. by hoovering the number of applications on their websites and things like that. I, I think that, that is too. really
2: interesting, yeah. and we, we, we you know if you look at the analysis around. Current account holders. A lot of people say, "Oh, you know, Monzo style I don't pay my my. I don't have my salary paid in there yeah. straight away." Which is a, which is a, again a no story, right? Because it hits my current account and disappears across. Yeah. God knows how many accounts you've got a zombie account. Yeah, 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 exactly. But it, it's more to do with actually the customer acquisition and how many of those customers are staying and starting to use those challenger banks as
0: their primary everyday. Yeah,
2: and when you look at that growth rate, right? If you look at current accounts, I think for RBS there are about twelve point six million current account holders. Yeah. Um, and then the growth rate with Monzo, which is now at three and a half. Starling actually, if you used to go from the same start date, is growing slightly faster.
0: So the, the thing with that as well it's only is-
2: five years and you're actually bigger.
0: So, they, but then also, if you've not closed your old account, you've still the the bank the that holds that account spot, yeah. has still got all the cost of running that account. So, the cost to serve is a couple hundred quid a year versus the cost to serve at the new place that's lower, but that has more activity. And who the the saying in uh, retail banking was always being top of wallet, like whatever card is being used the most is the one that's probably most likely to win the lending business that, that comes on the back of it because of the brand affiliation with that. So, it's going to be interesting. Well, your yeah, lending
2: means you need to have the balance
0: sheet, right? That's which, which you know, they may not. But, have. I think yet. what will
2: be really interesting is off the back of that, when we start seeing what those IPOs are, how many of them actually, new challenges come to the market, decide to go and get a banking license? Or whether how many of them sit there and say, you know what, I don't need a banking license because the way that actually the infrastructure models are changing. You've got people like, you to know, plug ClearBank with banking as a service, right? They, you don't necessarily need to have... That banking license. If you look at Tide, they don't have a banking license, but they offer you a full current account, FSCS protected now through through CB. That's that changes your operational model. It changes your liquidity. It changes your capital. It changes everything you need, and it changes your operational cost.
0: I think if you like this, listeners, um, remember that Fintech Insider is available on iTunes <laughs> now, and we <we'll laughs> talk about all of this good <laughs> stuff on there. And I think we learned, you know, on today's show that um, look, the the whole stablecoin central bank digital currency space is probably emerging and will continue to be a hot topic. Um, that uh, the technology seems to be maturing, but that um, some of the people who were there in the early days may be moving on and. Uh, that uh, we're going to see IPOs soon. There's a bunch of stories we didn't have time to cover though. Um, Story from Coindesk um, The Seychelles Stock Exchange will list Ethereum tokens representing supercars. Interesting Cointelegraph. Mercedes will use a blockchain to track carbon emissions in cobalt supply chain Uh, um, Cointelegraph, Cambridge Analytica whistleblower eyes blockchain to solve data privacy crisis Hmm. Um, And Cointelegraph, the UK (laughs) You don't have to chuckle Um, (laughs) Sorry um, And Cointelegraph, UK high court orders freeze on $1 million of uh, Bitcoin in ransomware So
2: I'm just hearing three stories which are all actually to do with digital identity (laughs) (laughs) Car, that's an identity, right? That's not a
0: token It's not, yeah, it's not a token, it's an identity issue Um, It's, as Dave Birch says, identity is the new money. Um, Time for Tweet of the Week. Tweet, 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 tweet. It's the Tweet of the Week. Tweet of the Week. This week's Twitter of the week comes from uh, Eric Gracia um, on Twitter. And uh, it just simply says, we love it. Uh, we love to see it at Bitpanda. And this is, I think, a picture of an advertisement from Bitpanda um, that simply is a sort of uh, a digital advertising screen, probably somewhere in Canada, because there's a Tim Hortons pictured. So I'm guessing it's Shannon's <laughs> <laughs> Could only be really, couldn't it, unless they've, they've started expanding internationally. Um, and the advert reads... Millions of people can't be wrong. Well, unless they're British. Meow. Uh, <laughs> sort <throw> of milk. <laughs> yeah, that, that, one, that one definitely hurt. All right, that wraps up this week's show. Just to remind you listeners, this podcast is brought to you by 11FS, and we are a challenger consultancy working to shape the very fabric of financial services itself with you and your help. Um, where can people find out more about you, Eric? Oh, Eric at
2: FrontierNetwork.com.
0: And Andy?
2: Uh, Twitter is probably quite a good one. So it's Andrew Clearbank on Twitter.
0: Like it. And you can find me at SYTaylor on Twitter or email me directly, simon11fs.com. Big thank you to our amazing production team here at 11FS, producers Laura Petra, Hannah Olivia, and of course Alex, our superstar editor. And there's hands on over there. Uh, thank you for listening. We'll have more Blockchain Insider in just a couple of weeks' time. Goodbye.